Welcome to Buy This Comic, the show where you keep the vital and vibrant medium of comics alive by infusing it with your hard-earned cash. What should you be spending your money on this week? It's Night Hunters number two, published by Floating World Comics and created by writer Dave Baker and artist Alexis Zirat. Dave is with us today to talk about this four-part miniseries. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, where are you joining us from today? Uh, I live in Koreatown in Los Angeles, uh, the city of angels, uh, where we are all in our homes because, uh, people here are assholes and keep refusing to wear masks. So all these motherfuckers are dying. (laughs) Really? It's just, it's crazy to me. I really don't feel like it's that big a deal to wear a piece of cloth on your face and literally save people's lives. I'm with you. (laughs) For starters, how would you describe Night Hunters? Uh, I would say that Night Hunters is a dystopian crime comic um, written by me, illustrated by Alexis Zirit of Tarantula and Black Masks Space Writers fame that pulls um, narrative cues from the works of people like Paul Verhoeven or uh, Ed Newmeyer or um, Philip K. Dick. And it, it's very kind of simultaneously uh pulpy and throwback in a cyber you know to it it's very cyberpunky in its uh in its uh kind of genre staples but at the same time hopefully um elevates those genres and has a political bent that is simultaneously um evergreen and timeless and also very relevant to today in fact unfortunately very very relevant to today um and uh yeah the book is four issues long and it follows two adopted brothers who live in this Venezuelan. They live in Venezuela in a dystopian future uh, where a police state has taken over, where there's been a law that's been passed that if you want to have a child in a hospital, be able to rent an apartment or run for public office, you have to have been or currently be a police officer. Hmm. So one of the adopted brothers uh, enrolls in the police force and ends up making compromise after compromise after compromise. And the other brother, uh, who is probably much more of a, a staunch uh, idealist, uh, chooses a life of crime where he, uh, he rebels against the status quo of this fascist police state and also rejects a, a societal norm of um, body augmentation and cybernetic enhancement. Um, he's something of a, a humanist in the literal sense of the word. Um, and uh, the book is about these two brothers as they kind of wax and wane through this uh, society. And, and uh, inevitably, because it's a story and you need conflict, they end up meeting each other and uh, are forced to uh, examine their own pre- preconceived notions of what a successful life might be and what the nature of compromise is while firing machine guns. <laughs> Sounds excellent. And, and speaking of the geographic setting of the story, I know Alexis is originally from Venezuela. So I'm curious, is the Venezuela of the future in Night Hunters a commentary on the Venezuela of the present? Uh, so there's two answers to that. One of them being, uh, when we first started talking about the book, it was very important to Alexis that the book be set in Venezuela. He's very passionate about representation and he wants genre fiction to reflect his experience. And like the direct quote that he usually says is like, not every science fiction story needs to be a fucking white guy in space. <laughs> and that's something that I agree with. And 
you know, his uh, aesthetic visually and his, his illustrative ability is so, it's just amazing what, what that guy can do. And so when, when you find those pockets of ideas that people are excited about as a, as a writer, you, you lean into that, you know, you say like, oh, you're passionate about drawing squids or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm going to write a scene where there's like a squid monster or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> and you can, you get better work from people that way. And, and it, it buoys the entire medium. So there's the logistical side from my perspective of like trying to help Alexis make the best Alexis Syrup comic ever. And then also the political side of it, which I also am very passionate about of representation and and diversity and pushing stories outside of the, in air quotes, traditional um, locales, um, whether that be narratively or literally in, you know, there's not a lot of cyberpunk here in the United States that people read that takes place in Venezuela. Um, from my perspective, yes, to answer your question after a long and rambling answer, it's informed by what's been happening there, but it's not concrete. Um, there are small cues here and there of stuff that I've layered in, but I also am um, a big enough person to admit when I am not an expert in a foreign country that I <laughs> quite frankly have never been in. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to try and do that poorly. So I chose to kind of take the framework of some of those ideas and transpose them into genre archetypes that would be easily recognizable and then warp those genre archetypes. Like one of the specific things is a lot of the police officers in the book are named after um, Venezuelan politicians or Venezuelan leaders of state, hmm. um, which is a something probably most readers aren't going to be familiar with uh, here in the U.S. But hopefully if you are familiar with Venezuelan history, you'll recognize some of these people as like it'll be a small kind of subtle like um, equation of the fascist police state in our book to the history of the politics and quite frankly, dictatorial nature and fascist uh, uh, regimes that have existed within Venezuelan history. Um, so there's stuff like that, but it's a both yes and no answer. So I yeah, should yeah. I should have just said yes and no. No, no, I, I like <laughs> the longer version. It was better. <laughs> um, it, and how did uh, you and Alexis come to team up on this project? Yeah, um, Alexis and I had known each other for probably about five years through the convention scene. We're, we're you know, good buddies. And we just kind of hit it off because we both like genre movies and like weird fucked up, uh, you know, uh, horror films and, and, you know, old comics and weird, weird stuff. And um, he was in between projects and looking for something to do. And I was like, I mean what's up dude i love the way you draw and he was like okay cool what do you want to do and we were throwing around some ideas and he's like you know I, I actually have this this character design from like 2012 what do you what do you think about this and he showed me the sombra character design the guy paramilitary gear hood one eye and i was like oh <laughs> fuck yeah that dude rules let's do that um so he kind of like dug out these older character designs and he was like i think it's like a cyberpunk book it takes place in Venezuela about this like paramilitary group. But other than that, I don't, I don't really have any like idea what the story is. I just think it's just like these guys doing cool shit. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds rad, but also I don't want to make any propaganda. So we're going to make this an anti-cop <laughs> comic. Um, and so that's kind of when we both started talking about things like Starship Troopers. A different flavor of propaganda. 
Yeah. Speaking absolutely. of Paul Verhoeven yeah, yeah, and Starship yeah. Troopers. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because um, if the listener is not familiar, uh, Starship Troopers, the movie is a propaganda movie made from the universe that Robert Heinlein's movie or book Starship Troopers takes place in. So it's like a it's you're not actually supposed to be watching the movie and thinking that that's a movie. It's like this is a future society's ideal of what the positive aspects of fascism are, mm-hmm. which is just so cool. Um, <laughs> I I love that movie. But so our my goal for this was to kind of you know do a a Judge Dredd or 2000 AD book set in Venezuela with this kind of like um sardonic ironic kind of like um very very taciturn and yet at the same time tongue-in-cheek uh approach you know like the the people in the comic they're not good people they're like really shitty horrible pro-fascist motherfuckers Mm -hmm. but they think they're good people and narratively interrogating that of like how you even the the positive in air quotes the like secular humanist you know i believe in a democracy of people free from this uh, fascist regime people as the book goes on maybe they will make choices that are not so positive because everybody has to compromise in some way um and that's i think that's the kind of core of the book that I probably brought to it. Like Alexis brings the rad artwork, the great colors, the cool guns. And I bring the like, yeah, but it's like really sad because you always have to compromise. <laughs> well, it sounds like a match made in heaven. Right. Yeah, good. I guess. Yeah. If you're, <laughs> if you're into like reading stuff that looks really cool and then walking away being a little depressed. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, right up my alley. <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. Um, so, Floating World Comics is publishing this book, but publishing the physical book is just one part of the long process of making comics. I wonder if you can uh, talk to us a bit about how you were able to use crowdfunding to make this project happen. So, uh, I am very passionate about creator ownership. Um, comics as a medium has a horrible history of creators getting fucked over. And I think people don't even realize how bad it is today. Like, I think people think like, oh, Siegel and Schuster and Alan Moore and Jack Kirby. It's a shame, but they were working for Marvel. <laughs> and uh, that's just not even the way it works anymore. Like right now, all almost all publishers have deals where they take 51% of the film and TV rights of, in air quotes, creator-owned comics, which is saying that they're creator owned because they own the copyright but then stripping out the video game rights and the tv rights and the film rights and the merchandising rights Mm -hmm. to take the majority stake in is not accurate it's like yeah you own this car but we're going to take the wheels and the engine and the windshield wipers and the back window but you have the front window isn't that cool you can sit in a car in a parking lot (laughs) it's fucking bullshit so you know alexis and i had gotten a couple offers from publishers and um, they just weren't really what we were looking for. They were, they were, uh, creator owned comics in name only. And if that's those people's, you know, their, their modus operandi, that's great, man. Fucking embrace that pirate lifestyle, be a fucking mobster. You know, somebody has got to have fucking concrete shoes put around their feet and thrown off a bridge. How are they going to, how are they going <laughs> to get drowned if there's not mobsters? So after probably about two years of us shopping this pitch around, we were pretty dejected. We were like, fuck, man, 
these deals suck. Hmm. And then Jason, the uh, founder of Floating World, I had known him a bit through the convention scene. And, and so I, I sent him the pitch of just like, hey, man, this is what we're working on. I don't know if this is something, you know, Floating World ever be into publishing, but, you know, this is what we're doing. Quite frankly, not even really expecting anything more just like I like Jason. He's a nice guy. I'm basically just going to check in with him and show him like I'm working on this thing. And he responded with like, yeah, this looks great. I love this. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yes, but we need to own it. And he was like, fuck yeah, everybody owns everything in Floating World. And I was like, oh, all right, great. And that's when we came to the other side of the coin, right? I was like, therein lies the rub. Therein lies the rub. <laughs> How do you maintain creator ownership and pay an artist? How do, you, how do you do it? Because that's how these larger publishers function is they give you X number of dollars a page for the risk mitigation tactic of we will take a majority stake in the film rights so that we can option it, turn it into a multi-billion dollar franchise, which is very unlikely, but we can justify that to our investors as, you know, we, yes, we paid whatever, 15, 30, $50,000 to these people, mm -hmm. but when it turns into a 500 or 200,000 or, or a million dollar option, then we'll recoup that loss and everything will be great. I'm not unfamiliar with the way those things work. And that's great that those people are practicing that way. And I don't even necessarily begrudge them that. It's the fact that everybody works that way. Hmm. You know, every fucking publisher out here that's not image, basically, mm -hmm. is like, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah it's, it's almost everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not going to go through the entire list, but it's almost everyone. And they have what I consider to be a deeply immoral approach to the health of the medium. They don't care about comics. They care about trying to mitigate risk and chase movie deals. And that, that flows down even to the way the books are made. The books are published in a way so they feel like pilots to TV shows. Mm -hmm. There's active discouragement of use of the comics language of call-out captions or weird panels or you know experimentation. We're like, what if we did a comic the whole book was just one panel over and over again? I don't know. I'm not actually thinking <laughs> that. That sounds bad. But you know what I mean? Like there's a person out there that's probably done that and it's great. Right. Right. And that type of comic specific language is is eschewed uh, for the pursuit of but will uh Steven Spielberg be able to read this in yeah. on a flight to you know fucking Romania when he's shooting whatever and be like yeah that was not bad yeah it can be pretty and, transparent when you read those comics too oh so. man completely and so the solution we came up with was Jason at Floating World myself and Alexis decided all right we're gonna do a Kickstarter but we're gonna be upfront about it we're basically gonna say this Kickstarter is for a book that has not been made yet but it's going to, the money that we raise from it through pre-sales of the books themselves will only go to paying Alexis specifically. Like I didn't get paid for that shit. Mm -hmm. It's Alexis specifically the money to be able to spend eight months or a year, however long it takes him to draw the book. Mm -hmm. And that way we can keep ownership, have distribution from an actual comic book company and, um, you know, uh, make the book the way we want to make it without the compromises inherent. And this is the flip side of that coin is it's risky. It takes a lot of work. It takes longer. It's for me, uh, a lot more work. Cause I'm the one mailing out all these packages and shit. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy road to hoe, but my perspective on it is I would rather bet on myself and my creative compatriots 
um, than give into that system. Um, and maybe there will be a point in time in the future where I'm like, you know what? I'm fucking tired. Give me the money. You can have 51% of this idea. I don't know. But, <laughs> but specifically for this project, and especially considering the relationships that Alexis had just come out of with various publishers, which I don't want to speak for him and say they were positive or negative. I'm just saying they were publishers that had very specific agendas. And uh, my goal was for us to have an attack that was very pure, very undiluted. And I think that reflects in the work. And I think judging from the state of the country that the book has come out in and the reaction from people that have read it, I think that that has struck a chord. Definitely. Definitely has with me anyway. But yeah. But thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it, it, it's actually a little weird to me on some level, like a year and a half ago or two years ago or whenever the fuck we were making it, how I was thinking about police brutality and the entrenched dogma surrounding a police state and the way people acquiesce to it and the bizarre thought patterns of the people inside those systems that then in the ensuing time between our Kickstarter campaign and the book's release, you know, the George Floyd murder happened, the Breonna Taylor murder happened, um, all of these horrible crimes that have just gone, gone completely unpunished and quite frankly condoned by the, the former regime um, read, led by the Cheeto in, in chief. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to me that it is weirdly not farcical. Like I was intending to write it as like a Pat Mills comic from like uh -huh. 85. Mm -hmm. And then like there's a part in issue two where one of the cops is chasing somebody through a strip mall and starts screaming, um, we're here to protect you, we're here to protect you, while firing indiscriminately into a crowd of people. And that's like basically what happened repeatedly for the past year. Yeah. And it's really weird to me, really, really disturbing. It's not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, now, how about a shout out to your local comic shop? Where does someone in your neighborhood go to get a copy of Night Hunters? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I shop at Mega City One on uh, on Melrose in in LA. Um, it's a, a little seedy hole in the wall comic book store that uh, used to be a record store. Um, shout out to Jago, the manager. He's mm -hmm. uh, he's my dude, and by my dude, I mean he's the person. If I was ever in a brawl uh, after a soccer game, <laughs> and I needed somebody to be like, "Oi!" <laughs> fucking get off my dude die just come <laughs> throwing elbows it'd be that guy uh i love him he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a, he's a fucking character and yeah mega city <laughs> one they they have all my books there um they order they're very kind and they they order a lot of uh both night hunters and star trek voyager seven's reckoning the other mini series that i have coming out right now from idw uh and they've been super fun to work with and uh cbs has been really nice and uh, I'm a massive Star Trek person, so writing on a a, a, a license, an officially licensed Star Trek book is, is really fun. It's really it's it's pretty surreal. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Star Trek character is is uh, Tuvok, played by Tim Russ in, in Voyager. And the final issue, the fourth issue, just came out. And there's a uh, you know there's a long tradition in Star Trek comics of making really stupid fucking shitty photo variant covers. I don't really understand it. I don't know why people like them. Um, and variant covers in general are a, are a racket and a cancer on the industry and promote collectability over readability, but that's fine. 
<laughs> that's your thing fucking whatever dude there's a bunch of really weird dr strange benedict cumberback photo variant covers that you can find <laughs> somewhere but tuvok is the photo cover variant for the fourth issue and i was like ah fuck idw you got me i love this i can't believe that there is a dumbass fucking photo variant cover with my favorite star trek character on it that i wrote that's so fucking cool yeah that's excellent it's, i have to say it's greek to me I, i'm not i'm not a star <laughs> trek person but i i am I'm, I'm very happy for you i'm very happy for you but speaking of where can people find you online and keep up with all of your various projects yeah absolutely uh you can find me uh on instagram doing a lot of drawing stuff uh x dave baker x or if you want to pick up my self-published comics or any of the comics we talked about today you can go to heydavebaker.com or if you're into listening to me and my friend Andrew Price ramble about weird, obscure topics, we co-host a uh, um, we co-host a a explainer podcast called Deep Cuts, where we pick a topic and then walk the listener through the ins and the outs and the nitty gritty of this weird, obscure thing. Hmm. And um, it's pretty fun. Uh, we we're we're doing some really weird stuff. We just did an entire two hour musical episode with eleven original songs, where both Andrew and I sing, and Andrew wrote all <laughs> original music for it. Wow. Um, uh, wow. Yeah, it's it's not it's not just like people getting together and like <clears throat> drinking beers and talking. It's like a full thing. So wow, if, you're, that if you're into it. Yeah it's around yeah i will definitely subscribe to that and on that note uh you listening in please make sure to subscribe uh leave a rating and follow us on the social media we are simply by this comic all one word uh dave baker thank you for joining us yeah thanks for having me jason goodbye